Hi, I'm Kara Oakleaf. And I'm Susie Rigdon. Welcome to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of the Watershed Lit Station. This season, we're sitting down with writers from across the genre spectrum. To hear all of our episodes, subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more. Hi, right, Susie. Today, we are talking with poet Vandana Khanna. Uh, she's got a new book out called Burning Like Her Own Planet, and we are really excited to hear from her. So let's uh, go ahead and just dive into our conversation with her. Born in New Delhi, India, and raised in Falls Church, Virginia, Vandana Khanna is a writer, educator, and editor. She's the author of three collections of poetry, Train to Agra, Afternoon Masala, and most recently, Burning Like Her Own Planet, as well as the chapbook, The Goddess Monologues. Vandana, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm thrilled to be here virtually. <laughs> yes. Um, we, we would love to start by having you read a poem from, uh, from the most recent collection. Great. Yeah. So this is um, my most recent book. It's called Burning Like Her Own Planet. And this poem is called The Goddess Tires of Being Holy. Call yourself whatever you want, girl or goddess. Truth is, no one loves you any better. There's not enough gold in the world to make you feel holy, hallowed, whole. No gloss pretty enough to save a face marked by tragedy. For your trouble, a handful of thorns, a bit of marigold dust. This is what you get for begging to be chosen. Every god in the universe eyeing you through the clouds like a hot wound he can't help but press. The terrible beating in your veins, so loud it makes your blood hurt. That's the part you always get wrong. The one where they watch you burn and burn. It's a fantastic poem. Thank you. Thank you. So with this book, uh, you've talked about the, the ancient Hindu texts, the Ramayana, as one of the main sources of inspiration. And I'd just like to ask you for, for our listeners who aren't as familiar with that text, could you tell us a little bit about it, your relationship to it, and, and in particular, what draws you to uh, the, the goddesses Parvati and Sita? Sure. So um, when my eldest son was little, I decided to read him these like picture books about Hindu gods and goddesses, about the mythology, because I thought it would be a great way to introduce him to part of my culture. And as we were reading these books, I noticed that oftentimes it was all about the gods and the goddesses ended up being sort of like plot devices or like these really flat characters who were loyal mothers and wives and they didn't have any dimension whatsoever. So I really started like sort of thinking like, what, what would happen if we told these stories from um, the goddess's point of view. And so the two main goddesses that I focused on were Sita and Parvati. Sita, who is the one of the main characters of the Ramayana, um, which is basically the epic story of Ram, his bride Sita, their ascension to the throne. But basically, from my point of view, it was really about Sita and her role um, kind of as a wife but also towards the end of her journey of her life as a goddess, kind of really taking ownership of who she is. And so that was kind of like the journey. And then for Parvati, I was really very interested in this idea of luring somebody 
to like fall in love with you. Um, and I was just kind of like, I thought that was really interesting. And so the way Parvati does kind of seduce Shiva to open his eyes, he's in this like meditative state for like thousands of years. And so the way she does that is by like giving up everything, all worldly possessions. And she kind of also kind of gets into a state of meditation. And so I thought like, it's interesting, like what do these goddesses have to give up to be perceived as holy or um, good enough. I'm really curious because, you know, we, we've had a number of authors at Fall for the Book um, and that we, we love to read who do these, who do retellings, who, who embody these very famous personas. And of course, you're explaining all these wonderful ways you're doing that here. How did you really approach writing the persona poems or writing from the perspectives of Parvati and Sita. Right. So um, I did a lot of research. So I did read like very differing versions of the Ramayana and then some other ancient Hindu texts called like the Rig Veda. And so I read like very different versions. So like I read like, like I said, kids books versions, but then I read like these really thick texts, a lot of it skimming. And then I, I even read like they're like novelized versions of them too, like where people have turned them into novels. Um, so I started with that and then I ended up really just sort of thinking about what it feels like to be, to be a young woman in the world. And so I, what I really wanted was these stories, these poems to kind of transcend time so that they're still very timely for young women and women today. You know, truthfully, not much has changed in all these centuries, if you really think about it. So that's kind of how I approached it. I sort of pictured in my mind, like, you know, a young woman. And what does it feel like to be put in these situations that are epic, but like in everyday life, we're put into these positions where we're always questioned, we're not believed, uh, we have stories to tell, and we're silenced, you know. And so it kind of came um, from that point of view. And then I, um, I, you know, like I played a lot of Beyonce and Rihanna in the background. <laughs> yes. <laughs> kind of get me into that like mood, you know, like, yeah, you know, these are, are, are women artists who have lots to say. And so it, they were kind of like background inspiration. You know, we, we, we had talked about that a lot um, when, when Susan and I were reading this book, that one of the things that really kind of struck us is how these these are poems that are responding to these very ancient stories, but they're reflecting such modern concerns. And there are all these connections you see between these original stories and how the poems are kind of contending with, with modern considerations for women. So I, I'm kind of uh, curious to hear a little bit more about like how, how you thought about that and that relationship as you were writing these. Yeah, so like within the ancient texts themselves, the story of Ram and Sita is that you know, they fall in love and he gets ousted. And so they're like in this like jungle for, you know, 10 years or whatever. And she kind of really helps, I think, like support him. He ascends to the throne, but, you know, it's kind of very melodramatic. So she gets kidnapped by his rival. And um, when she gets brought back, saved by him, the townspeople don't believe that she's not been... Um, assaulted or violated. 
um, even though she tells them that she hasn't been. So then she has to like walk, literally walk through fire. And if she doesn't get burned, then she's, you know, then, then they're going to believe her. Then her husband's going to believe her. And she does all that, you know, sounds familiar. Like I did all that and still they don't believe her and she gets like banished. And so I really thought, you know, like this is a very contemporary story and sadly so. And so I really started thinking about how, you know, this character, she becomes a character in my head. Like, how does she deal with the fact that somebody she's professed her love to, she's been loyal to, she's, you know, stood behind, stood next to, still doesn't believe her. And I really just kind of was like, okay, I'm going to embody this character because I think so many people, just people in general can probably relate to that. And then for Parvati, it was also very similar. Like, um, I imagine, you know, what it, what a lot of young people in their late teens and early 20s have to do to get somebody to notice them, to get somebody to fall in love with them. You know, what do you have to give up? And, um, and so I really just sort of was thinking about those moments in people's lives that are very relatable. And so I kind of really wanted to like embody these goddesses as real people and, and sort of like these very real emotions and situations, even though they're like on these epic scales in these stories that you can really bring them down to earth and to everyday life experiences. Yeah, that was something that I really noticed in reading this was the strong feelings of grief especially the strong feelings of rage and anger. And, you know, I just, especially when you're, you're looking at these, these women who are typified as the good wife, the good mother, the loyal, the, you know, the chaste, whatever it is, you know, so why is it so important? I think this is sort of getting to what you're talking about with the modern considerations. Why is it so important to explore this side of the goddesses, the human side, the emotional side, the very rightfully rageful side? Well, I think for me, um, you know, I think that for a very long time, these like iconic stories have silenced women. And, you know, um, I'm working on a collection, my next collection, and it's still Persona. And I promise after that, I'm not going to do any more Persona. But it's from the point of view of Penelope, right? Like, again, another uh, wife, loyal. She's the one who gets left behind and has to deal with all that stuff, you know? Um, and so for me, like, I feel like I'm... I, I think we're all very frustrated for having been silenced for so, so long. And so for me, it was like, I'm, I'm tired as a person and I want to be able to give voice to these goddesses, to these stories, to these women and, and really sort of channel, you know, my own like rage through these, through these characters. You know, I think writing can be a great, way to channel lots of emotions. Um, and so for me, this was like a great way to kind of channel the frustration and the anger and the sense of betrayal, you know, that I think many people feel in our culture that never seems to kind of, we don't, we don't seem to evolve 
quite as fast as I think we we really need to. I thought there was an especially sort of poignant moment at the end of the poem Self-Portrait as Goddess After the Fire. And your, your description that you use in the book is it's based on the goddess Sati for whom the practice of widow throwing herself on her husband's funeral pyre is named. And just, you know, the context for, for everybody listening. And what I loved and found so profound is at the end, what she feels after doing this is freedom. And that's like such a contrast to this act of burning, to this act of, you know, following one's husband onto the pyre that was but it was freedom that she feels yeah I mean I think that a lot of it has to do um, with my interpretation obviously everybody's going to have their own but after a certain point it's kind of like you know when people say it's kind of like owning yourself your story owning what happens to you and I think for me what was really important is that in these ancient stories, in most stories, it feels like the the women are being acted upon. There's very little agency. And so I wanted to sort of repurpose these acts in a way so that they do have a sense of agency, that you know they are somehow like placed in these situations because of fate or destiny or whatever, um, but they're going to find a way to uh, have a little bit of agency and make these acts that are acted upon them, make them somehow meaningful for themselves. I really like to what you're saying about the idea of these, the, these women being able to kind of define themselves in that way. Like the, the, the poem Susie mentioned was self-portrait as goddess after the fire. And there's another self-portrait poem in another part of the book, Self-Portrait as a Girl Conceding, which which is one of the poems that feels like it, it reflects a whole lot of like a lot of more very like modern considerations. But, but I love that idea that those were two self-portrait, self-portrait poems. So you have like that, that voice really front and center for the characters. Yeah. So what I, when I was putting this book together, I think when I write a book, I just kind of write. And then later on, I kind of put the poems together and see where there are gaps, you know, and where they are having conversations and where they could kind of speak to each other. And I really, I noticed that there was this idea of, because I'm writing them, this sense of like, somehow these goddesses do have some reflection of um, my own sensibilities, maybe not what's happening to me, but my own sensibilities. Um, and so I was like, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to have a series of self-portraits. I'd like to do um, some erasures, which the, each kind of section opens with an erasure, uh, which is literal erasure of the ancient texts. And so I thought it was really important considering that oftentimes we feel like these goddesses these women and girls are being erased from the story to kind of repurpose this idea of erasure for them. I always love hearing about how writers structure a piece, like a, a whole collection, whether it's short stories or poems, because there, there are other places where it feels like those different sections are talking to each other. You have uh, creation myth and destruction myth poems in, um, in, in separate sections of the book as well. So I was kind of curious about how 
you know, you talked a little bit about, about how you were structuring it, but how you kind of decided to divide up those sections, how you see those different parts of the book speaking to each other. Yeah. So for me, um, I was trying to think of ways to either make a progression while still maintaining each section as its own like discrete unit. And sometimes it, it can get very complicated. Um, but for this book, you know, uh, certain things just did start emerging. So this idea of creation and destruction myths, one of the tenets of Hinduism is this cycling through of the life cycle. And so for me, that was one uh, structural device that I really felt like, okay, I'm going to start with some kind of creation. We're going to end up after each section in some kind of destruction and then start again and start again, which is why like at the very end of the book, no spoilers, but like the last poem, you know, the, I think the last line is like begin again. Um, so those were ways that I could kind of like um, create these scaffoldings um, in each unit, which was like, I wanted to have an opening of creation and destruction. I wanted to have a, an erasure and kind of then each unit, I wanted to get a sense of kind of evolution, but I don't know if necessarily it transcends throughout the book. It might just be in my mind, each unit, each section is kind of a creation, evolution, destruction. Um, and that's kind of how I thought of them. I and we also of course see the uh, reincarnations in the you know oh he's looking at a future reincarnation or whatever it is sort of seeing that echoed in the the plot itself which was really nice. You've already mentioned one other figure that you're currently writing persona poems for, but are there any other myths or figures that you're really really interested in in working with? Not currently. I mean like so this book took about 5 years. And this current book I'm working on is, is kind of clocking in at about four years. I kind of become obsessed. Um, and so right now um, I'm sort of obsessed with this idea of persona. When I first started writing as like a young person, I did write in persona quite a bit, be it like a, a character that I had read about and it's sort of funny because it's kind of like a full circle moment because I used to write in persona as a way to kind of distance myself from my own like autobiography, for instance. And then through years of writing, I realized like I can write about what's happened to me in my own life, even in a sense that I, I feel like um, the I persona in a poem is always somewhat a persona. And the way I see it is like we, you know, we show different parts of ourselves to different people in very different relationships, right? So right now I'm like in the public sphere, I'm a poet, you know, when I get off, I'm going to be like yelling at my teenagers to clean up their room, you know? So for me, the idea of persona has evolved quite a bit to encompass almost every time we write, even if the speaker of the poem is an I speaker. So right now I'm just really obsessed with now Penelope, these goddesses have had their moment. I kind of am really obsessed with this idea of 
you know, what happens to a person, a woman who's left behind. She's the one who has to like, you know, for 20 years has to keep up the household and raise their child. And, you know, um, and so I'm sort of interested in that aspect of it. Again, this idea of like men get to go off and have the adventures and the woman in this case, I like liken her to an anchor, right? She's the anchor. But what does it mean to be an anchor? And what if you didn't choose to be that person left behind, you know? So that's kind of my current obsession right now. You, you've got me thinking about the, um, the, the Margaret Atwood novella about Penelope. And I'm just so excited about the idea of reading now persona poems from Penelope's voice. It's just... Um, I'm looking forward to seeing those, you know, at the end of the four years that you're working on. That would be great. Whatever, yeah. whatever timeline you're on. I, I also wanted to switch gears really quick, ask you a little bit about your work as a poetry editor, because you were um, a poetry editor for uh, for the Los Angeles Review for a long time. As an editor, what kind of things do you look for in a poem? What, what kind of things kind of grab you from that slush pile? Um, and do you feel like your work as an editor has had a lot of influence on your own writing? Oh, definitely. So what a, what's been great about being a poetry editor is that I had a co-editor um, who's a very good friend of mine, and we have very similar sensibilities, but then we also diverge. So it's always nice to have another voice in the room. But for me, what always grabs me is like a strong voice. And maybe it's this persona, like interest in persona, but I want like that first line to just come out and grab me. Like I kind of liken it to a short story or a novel where you're kind of dropped in the middle of the story, if there is a story or a moment, it doesn't have to be a story. So I kind of, I kind of want to be in that moment almost immediately. I love great details. Like I love to feel like I'm in whatever the world is of that poem. So that really is what kind of grabs me. And that's really influenced quite a bit of my own writing. So this is like my third collection, working on my fourth collection. I think for me, I've tried to pivot just slightly my own writing style. One, because I don't want to get bored and too, because I started off really very narrative. So like my first book, my second book, it's very narrative. Um, and I think that was really necessary for those projects. But with um, the goddess books, uh, the goddess book and, and the Penelope book that I'm working on, it's more like mood. And so it's like, how do you create a mood? So for me, like, yeah, this book, it's, it's all about recreating those myths but it's also about like creating a mood, a sense of how um, image can kind of stand in for story. So it was really kind of a challenge for me to consciously kind of cut away at the story part because I figure like either you know the stories or you don't. And if you don't know them, that's fine because I want you to just be able to pick it up and just kind of read it and through your own contemporary lens. But I also wanted people to get that sense of like heartache and anger as we were talking about. I want those like emotions to come through. And so for me, rather than saying those 
words. I wanted to like create these images or my descriptions to kind of get you that sense that, that like, so um, reading a lot as an editor has helped me because I see how other people do it. And you're just like always training yourself. I think we're as readers, we're always figuring out, I think like, why do I like something? I often tell my students, like, it's like, it, of course, we're going to like certain things and not like certain things. But we, and we can all agree that, oh, the writing is of this great level, but it's just not appealing to me. So the idea is like, well, why is something appealing to you or not appealing to you? And it's really always like digging through that because there's so many great writers, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to speak to me. And that's the book I'm going to like reach for over and over again. That's all so great to think about. So writers, as you're writing, as you're submitting, think about this. I have, I have one last sort of silly question. So, you know, sometimes we can pair a book with a drink, but now I need to know based on your, what you were listening to while you were writing this, what Beyonce song do you pair with your book? Well, I was, I was listening to the whole lemonade um, <laughs> album because, you know, it, for me, like that album's about betrayal and fidelity and infidelity. And, and so that would, that was really kind of what I was thinking about when I was writing this, you know, and about being in a relationship and then, um, you know, a little bit of Rihanna in there, you know, like we found a love in a hopeless place, you know, things like that. Like, <laughs> so those were, um, those were like the two kind of artistic, like mood boards. They were, they were definitely like musical mood boards for me, for this, for this book. Excellent. All right. Get your Spotify's open everyone now. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Bonita, we've had so much fun talking with you today from everything about the Romeana to Beyonce. So thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you so much. This is great. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Jordan Bostick as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org. 